Tulips, a pod about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. I am your host, Carrie Clement, and I am coming to you from the homelands of the Crow, Blackbeach, Cheyenne, Lakota, Dakota, Salish, Kootenai, and Shoshone Bannock. Today I am joined by Megan, Doctor, excuse me, Dr. Megan Kate Nelson, author and historian of American Civil War, the West, popular culture, and the 19th century. She recently published an excellent book called The Three-Cornered War, a narrative account of the epic struggle for the West during the Civil War, revealing a little-known but vastly important episode in American history. Currently, she's writing a new book that tells the story of the 1871 Yellowstone Scientific Survey and the creation of the park in context of Reconstruction. Today, we are going to be telling the tale of Truman Everett's 37-day, shall we say, experience? in 1870 in the area that would be known later as Yellowstone National Park. First of all, Megan, how are you doing? I am doing okay. I mean, I think we're all sort of in bad shape, but at least we're not in as bad shape as Truman Everts was during his his time lost in the wilderness. That That was like next level suffering. I mean, this is bad. And, you know, we're, we're at this moment uh, in American history where, you know, things are happening that I never thought I would actually ever see that I thought were just, you know, historical, uh, moments that, that I would just read about and talk about in my work, uh, not actively be watching kind of unravel in real time. (laughs) So that, that has, you know, uh, it's unsettling. Let me just say that, uh, for me, as I'm sure it is for you and for everybody who's listening. Yeah, and, and for context, we're recording this several days after um, the events at the American uh, Capitol building in January yes. of 2021. So, yes, the armed, yeah. the armed insurrection. The armed um, insurrection. Yeah, let's call it what it is. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. and the invasion of the invasion of the Capitol. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and it it, it sh- certainly has made me think about what it means to be thinking about the future and like what historical folks were thinking about for the future, which I think is interesting in context of Truman Everett's 1870 experiences. (laughs) Um, Oh, definitely. And and also kind of launching into something where you think everything's going to be okay. And maybe you have a little bit of a worry in the back of your mind, like, oh, maybe I could get lost or maybe I could get accidentally shot or set on fire, um, or, you know, in, in his kind of, and all of his compatriots kind of wild fears sort of captured by native people and, you know, tortured to death. Um, but then you just kind of are like, no, I don't think that will happen. The odds of that are very low. Yeah. And then you just saddle up and go, everyone will be, everything will be fine. Yeah. And then, and then suddenly (laughs) you find yourself in the middle of it. Um, Yeah. So what are we drinking today? Oh, yes. So I um, am actually remarkably staying committed to to dry January in the middle of all this chaos, uh, which is a surprise to myself and everyone I know. But um, I decided to make in honor of Montana uh, (laughs) and its uh, founders, uh, the miners who came in the early 1860s, um, a drink called the Gold Rush, which usually has bourbon in it. And it's bourbon and, and lemon and honey syrup. Uh, but I decided to switch out for the, the bourbon for um, for club soda. And then I threw some rosemary in there as a sort of stand in um, for the thistles that kept Truman Everts alive uh, during his 37 days of peril. Um, so and I have decided to call this cocktail 
fool's gold. So, <laughs> or this mocktail actually, fool's gold. So I think it kind of hits on several, several uh, registers there, but it's actually quite tasty. I am very pleased with it. And actually I may drink it again later. It sounds tasty. It, it is. Sounds, it is quite yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I'll have to make that in the future. Yeah, um, it is. Re- it is refreshing. So what are you having? So I'm essentially just having um, a, a form of a vodka soda, but with Ooh. huckleberries added to it. Because uh, the story I always heard, whether or not it was this is held up by historical uh, fact or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but the story <laughs> I always heard is that one of the last meals Truman Everett's ate was huckleberry pie um, before he was Ooh. sort of lost or before he embarked on his... Um, on his trek, on his expedition, I should say. So back in civilization, quote unquote, um, he had huckleberry pie. And so I put huckleberries because in, in my vodka soda um, and I am calling it Everett's Folly. So I love, I like how we are sort <laughs> yes. of on similar wavelengths in, tor- in terms of uh, a name. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. That sounds really good too. That sounds very refreshing. I'm sure he would have loved, like he probably had a dream about some version of of the huckleberry pie uh, out in his, when he was having his fever dreams about food. Yes. Well, shall we take a quick break? Sure. to do a quick sec to set the stage for us. Sure. So um, all of these events are happening in kind of the summer, early fall of 1870. And in kind of earlier in that year, in the summer, uh, Nathaniel Langford, who had been a, a candidate for the territorial governor of Montana, had gone east and was talking with Jay Cook, uh, a, a guy who I, I sort of like to imagine this conversation, actually, because those two guys, Langford and Cook, were both just amazing propagandists. Like they knew they had all the right instincts for how to lobby for things, how to promote things. And so that conversation must have been just amazing. They were totally on the same page. Um, and Langford really wanted to promote Montana territory. And he thought, you know, he, along with Everts and along with all of the, the officials and residents there, had been hearing all these stories about Yellowstone and, you know, from trappers and some miners and, of course, native stories that had been circulating around. And then the year before, there had been a a team of three that had gone a little bit of of the way into Yellowstone and had come back and kind of told people what they had seen. And so, you know, Langford thought this was a great opportunity to launch an exploration, which, of course, at this point in American history was this very sort of romantic idea, right, of, of white men setting off into the to the undiscovered wilderness uh, to, to, yeah, to see all of the sites and, you know, the first time white men had ever laid eyes on these things. And they were going to bring back these reports of this kind of American greatness as embodied, embodied in nature. And so uh, Cook agreed. He thought this was a great plan because he was uh, trying to build the Northern Pacific Railroad, which uh, whose line would kind of go about 50 miles north of the Yellowstone region. And so they, they thought this is a perfect plan. So Langford comes back um, to Montana, to Helena in in the summer, kind of late July, and starts to bring all of these people together. And one of those people 
weirdly, is Truman Everts, who is, you know, like, this is one of my big questions about him, because the guy was like in his mid 50s. And let me just tell you, I'm closing in on 50. So I don't want to like, be, you know, mean about old people. But like, (laughs) he was because I'm getting there myself. But like, he was in his mid 50s. He was a generation older than every other man on that expedition. You know, the rest of them were in their 30s and in pretty good shape. And he was like desperately nearsighted. And also what I have, you know, kind of heard from the the accounts that he didn't really get along with most of these guys, you know, who were all like Langford kind of civil officials. They were, um, you know, bankers and businessmen. And he was kind of known to be this kind of cranky, can we swear on the show? A cranky yes. son of a bitch. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's like, he's a cranky son of a bitch, right? So like right. why he decided, oh, in my last like couple of weeks in the territory, because he had lost his job, um, which of course was a patronage job. He was the, the assessor mm-hmm. of the internal revenue of Montana territory. And um, he had got, he had been first appointed actually by Abraham Lincoln, um, who after the creation of Montana territory, you know, one of the great things for Lincoln was that he was appointing all of these Republicans to these positions in all of these Western territories in order to secure their loyalty to the union. So Everts was one of these guys, but he's about to lose his job because Grant was in and he was reappoint making reappointments. So he's about to lose his job. Well, he had lost his job and he's about to kind of go back to the East with his daughter, Bessie. And he just decides, oh, one last adventure, <laughs> I guess, in in the Montana wilderness. I mean, I don't know. Why do you think he did this? I've always wondered what role Warren Gillette played in this. So my mm. understanding of the story is Warren Gillette was this younger man who I think would be about the same age as everyone else, you know, early 30s, maybe late 20s. Mm-hmm who wanted to marry Truman's daughter. And so I always sort of wondered if maybe Warren Gillette was like, I'm going to go and have this like last hurrah doing manly men things in the wilderness, either, you know, maybe to impress Elizabeth or maybe to like just have this last bachelor hurrah. And Truman Everett's was like, well, maybe I should go along just to like, I don't know, assert my masculinity or something like that (laughs) or male bonding time or maybe he ever you know Truman was trying to impress um some of the folks back east and during this time period in Montana and elsewhere uh, throughout the United States um there's just a lot of a lot of folks who were like well maybe I can just do these manly man things in the wilderness and like get money for it. And so there had to have been some sort of, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, I should say that if there wasn't some sort of money making angle to it, even if it wasn't fully like quantified in their diaries, because it would have made them look bad. (laughs) Right, right, right. It would have made them look venal and just sort of (laughs) greedy. Yeah, I mean, and I I think that's a, that's a really good option. And I think he probably part of his calculus too, was this, this idea that he would be hanging out with all of these important officials and that maybe they could help him in some way. Cause this is the thing we don't know a whole bunch about Everts at all until this moment. Like he, we know when he was born, he was born in Vermont. We know that he in the, you know, early 1860s was in DC working um, in the auditor's office as a clerk. But then he just gets, you know, what happened between then who Elizabeth's mother right. was. I'm not sure we even know like, and and then why he would take this position 
and go out to Montana. And then, you know, he held that position for, for quite a while. Um, but what he would, thought he was going to do then when he returned to the East is unclear. So maybe he thought this could help or that he thought Langford's connections in the East to Jay Cook at all could also help. Yeah, this, you're, this is way more your expertise than mine, but I just keep thinking about sort of the patronage um, networking dynamics of the grant, the transfer be to, to grants, uh, to grants presidency, um, particularly in context of this nation and upheaval, this nation, and you know, economic upheaval too, and what it means to be living in a territory that has all of this, you know, resources, but at the same point is still somewhat unsure about how it's going to go down, essentially. Right. Yeah. And I imagine at that point, too, I mean, Montana had not been a territory for very long. And I, I get the sense that there was a, a great deal of tension, as there were in a lot of other Western territories, between the local residents and these federal officials who just kind of appeared <laughs> out of nowhere yeah. and, and took up their offices uh, and, you know, formed this early kind of territorial government. And, you know, we always see, I think this is a common pattern in the West to see this real tension between local control and federal power. Um, and and I could see that playing out too in on the survey, uh, or not the survey, sorry, the exploration. I've been writing too much about the, the, the <laughs> survey. Okay. I just keep calling them the surveys. Um, but on this exploration, I could see, I mean, most of these guys, you know, some were government officials, but a lot of them were also businessmen um, and kind of how they were working together or, or perhaps maybe not working so well together um, to envision the future of Montana and to secure its future through something like the the huge Northern Pacific Railroad project. Um, I mean, that's interesting to consider. Although I do, I do like the idea that it was almost like a bachelor party. <laughs> like, like that, and you can see that too, like a hugely awkward bachelor party where like all of these guys in their thirties are there. And then there's this one outlier who's like the cranky old man in his mid fifties. <laughs> like, like people are probably like, who invited him? Because he was kind of a pain in the ass from the start. He got, he ate too many berries outside of Fort, you know, and they had to leave him at Butler's ranch for a little while. And he was just like, had feverish and like got lost a couple times before he got lost, like for really real. Um, so, you know, he didn't have a good track record even in the first two weeks of the survey right. before he, before he got lost. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I do think that the rest of the party did make a good faith effort to find him, but I, I wonder right. if there were members of the party who were sort of like, well, hmm. oh, do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> So where did this, so where did this all start? What, what, so we, we know that they, Langford sort of wanted to get a expedition going and obviously he did. Where did they start and how did he fit in with the early part? Sure. So they, they left in early August um, from Helena after kind of gathering everything together. They had like 40 horses and mules. They had all of these supplies. I mean, they were actually very well supplied and they had with them, um, uh, there were about, I think, six or seven kind of main guys, and then there were a bunch of packers, and then they they made their way from Helena. And I would actually love to know the story of these packers. This is something that, you know, there, there are people who don't enter the record very often, mm -mm. and and we don't know much about them because they don't leave a lot of records. 
but I would really love to know their stories. I think this would be an amazing project for someone to do. Um, all of these packers and scouts and guides and people who are like, lur- not lurking, that's not a nice word, um, just kind of <laughs> hanging around. Um, all of these mount- mining towns and then also Fort Ellis, which was the, the exploration's first stop. Um, and they would just get hired on to these exploration parties or these migration trains. Uh, And they, you know, were sort of these, I guess our first like gig workers, right? Like they would just (laughs) go and they'd they'd do this gig and they'd come back and they'd get another one and and they'd uh, develop a reputation for expertise in certain areas and and go on. But but they had, you know, they outnumbered the kind of main guys here. And uh, then they went to Fort Ellis and they picked up uh, their military escort, uh, mm-hmm. which was led by Cheney Dome, who wrote the the really kind of amazing military report. Um, Cheney Dome is his own <laughs> sort of right. whole story, you know, like a guy who had sort of wanted to be a scientist or a writer and then ended up in the military and fought in the Civil War and then ended up kind of thinking that he was pretty good at it. And so just signed up with the regular army and ended up out in Montana at Fort Ellis with his wife. Um, and he ended up on this exploration and then also on the 71, the kind of tail end of the 71 Hayden survey, which is an interesting sort of weird confluence. But um, so then they, they picked up their military escort because, you know, as you had noted in, in your own introduction, um, you know, these are native lands and Yellowstone proper was sort of a crossroads of many, many different native communities who kind of either passed through it, stayed in it for short periods, often on their way to go hunt um, the huge bison herds, buffalo herds um, of the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. And so they had they had good reason to be very wary uh, and very kind of afraid that they would be um, kind of attacked uh, by Shoshone or Crow or even maybe Lakota uh horsemen who were defending their own sovereignty uh, and trying to get these interlopers out of there. So uh, that's why the military escort was there with them. Um, And from Fort Ellis, they kind of took the route that becomes a really popular route and really the sort of gateway to the Yellowstone region, um, which is through this Montana side where they head kind of down from Bozeman, Fort Ellis, uh, down south to the Gardner River. um, Mm -hmm. And they follow that kind of into the, the basin proper. And that's where, you know, don't, or not don't, excuse me, that's where Everett has his many, many missteps where they stop at the, if I get this correct, the Bottler Ranch and Everett's is just hanging out there. Yeah, this is where, this is where he got sick. He like gorged himself on berries. (laughs) And then again, you're sitting there thinking, what are you doing? Like what? This would be like, you know, outfitting yourself to go climb the Tetons and then being like, you know what? I'm going to eat like 12 pizzas before I go. (laughs) Also, who kept feeding him those berries? Like, did they just sort of watch him going like, I got to see how this ends. Is he really yeah, going to eat all of those berries? Oh, he is. Oh. Yeah. I mean, this is this is one of those things where you're just like, what is going on? Like, what? Like, was it truly just a mistake or and or was no one paying attention to him? Or as you're suggesting, were they sort of like, oh, this will be interesting um, yeah. to see what happens when he eats this, like, these giant handfuls of berries. And, 
And this is Butler's Ranch is a very interesting place because it is at this moment really in the middle of nowhere. It is sort of between yeah. between Fort Ellis and and Yellowstone Basin proper. And but these are you know these German brothers are already living there. They've already got a sizable cattle herd. They're the and some of them are dairy cows, so they're like producing milk for people mm. <laughs> for people who are passing by. <laughs> And and doing all of this, and this is one of the things that seems so remarkable to me when I was writing the the Hayden survey. You know, they're like, we're about to jump off into the wilderness, but first, let's stop at this ranch, like, right. and and get all of this food and trade for these goods and get our newspapers and letters. And right. it, you know, it's really not until they enter, you know, they sort of cross through those um, cuts through the mountain ranges. And really enter, you know, by the Gartner's River, kind of Yellowstone River confluence. Like, that's the, really their first entry into true, true kind of what they would have, they, what they called wilderness. Um, but Butler's, they, you know, on the way there, there were all of these bridges that people had built. And they mm. were charging tolls. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, this is not, this is a wilderness of people. Like, there are right. a wilderness that is full of people. Like, this is not a, exactly uh, uninhabited country, but the Butlers were were really significant for that because they were these, as was Fort Ellis, kind of as a a way station and a um, a place for people to get supplies and really to kind of ready themselves to kind of jump off, right? Um, so yeah, so this is where he gets sick on the berries and they have to leave him behind, and then he he catches up again, um, but then he and a couple other guys get lost uh, right around Tower Falls. Uh, as they're exploring that area, this exploration party had a plan, which is that they would get up and they would start at 8 a.m. and then they would stop at 3 p.m. And they would just kind of go the whole day and then they'd camp and then they'd make their dinner and whatever. And and that seemed to Langford to be a kind of useful way to do it instead of stopping and starting again. Um, but they didn't seem to have a plan regarding people wandering off. <laughs> and, and this actually impacted Hayden's survey later. Like Hayden actually made an explicit rule and told his guys that they had to be with someone else. They could not go off by themselves. And it was because of Everett's idiocy that he made. So he had a real effect on, on surveys to follow uh, because you would have thought they would have known that the buddy system is a wise system uh, right. when you go off on an adventure like this. But, but apparently... They didn't have any plans at all. People were getting lost from the very beginning. And it sounded like they had made some plans, like they would say, okay, well, if you get lost, here's where we'll be. But, you know, if you don't know where you're going and you're going into an area that's really, for all, you know, unmapped, how, how are you going to know? Or at least a map that these, I hesitate to give them the label of elitist, but I think they would maybe consider right. themselves as that. Um, yes. That they would respect. Because, right. you know, Jim Bridger had sort of done some of those maps in there and or at least could verbally quantify the geography. And I'm sure, you know, some of the bottlers had some like, well, if you go down this river and then, you, you know, you turn here and then you're going to see that, you know, I'm sure there was stuff like that floating around to say nothing of indigenous descriptions of the area. Right. Like, did they have a compass even? Like, did they... I mean, because you're right. I mean, at this point, this this is as a native crossroads, it is just crisscross with all kinds of paths. Exactly. Right. And but then the problem becomes if you don't know which path you're supposed to take, if you kind of go off on another path, then you're totally lost within 
you know, minutes because you can't yeah. see anything else. And then if you really, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but Everett's real problem is he got turned around. And, and I've been in those situations before. I don't know if you've been in those where you like, you're, in a, you think you're in one place and you think you're headed in one direction. And when you realize you're not in the right place, it is a profoundly <laughs> unsettling situation. Um, and, and very easy to do. I mean, the people who had uh, the, the language knowledge and the expertise in this region were native, were indigenous. And, and these guys, you know, had never been in there before and didn't have a real track record of exploration experience. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point you make that they, that there were maps, but they probably were like, well, they're not maps that we're bound to respect. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have this sort of affect of rich white men with a God's eye view of the, the landscape. Right. Anyway, regardless. So they get into Yellowstone. <laughs> yes. They get into Yellowstone and Everett's is left behind and then he sort of catches up. Yes. And then he, there's some reports too that he had kind of a persistent fever. Because uh, of course, you know, they were out in the open and this was late. You know, we're getting kind of into kind of mid-August, mid to late mm-hmm. August, early September. And you know how the weather is in that region. <laughs> like yeah. it gets very cold at night. You're, you know, and if you're not used to sleeping outside, I mean, these guys may have been miners in the past, but they had been sleeping in houses, you know, for a little while. They had not been roughing it uh, for, for quite some time. And so it's, it's not surprising actually. And I think reports were that the entire group came back pretty unhealthy and, Mm. you know, with their clothes in tatters and like, they'd lost all this weight and had exposure illnesses. And this is not surprising, right? Because they spent all this time. You can't just start sleeping outside, uh, in these kinds of weather conditions and, and expect that it won't affect you. So, so apparently he was already, you know, a little bit feverish and, you know, they spent they basically until around September 8th, they were kind of moving their way um, southward. They saw both the lower and the upper falls. They saw tower falls. They kind of moved their way down and saw the mud pots. And then they ultimately found themselves at Yellowstone Lake. Um, so this is the usual path. Uh, this is the path the exploration team kind of took the year before them. They took it, and then the Hayden survey would take it the next year. And the crazy thing about this part of this, the west side of Yellowstone Lake is that um, it has all that fallen timber. It has very dense mm-hmm. forests. And so um, they were there, and they were kind of exploring that area. And it was very hard to find any sort of trail and to figure out where you were. And so it was on, I think, September 9th. Um, so they had been out for a couple, just a couple of weeks. Um, they were all trying to find the way and they were arguing amongst themselves about which way to go. I'm sure. Mm. And this, this also, mm-hmm. I sort of feel, I, I feel for them here because I've been in that scenario, usually with family members, um, so that the arguments have a special flavor um, to them. But you know, you if nobody knows where you are and everyone thinks they know the best way to get somewhere, of course they're going to argue. 
<laughs> well, and I can't so- imagine what it was like as a packer who's, you know, uh, herding yeah. mules or, well, not herding mules, you know, like managing the mules and, you know, loading and unloading all their crap, listening to the guys, quote unquote, in charge, just arguing about, we're going to go this way, we're going to go this way. And meanwhile, the packers yeah. are just looking at each other and starting to count their rations. Like, yeah, just, exactly. I can't yeah. imagine being those guys and being like, Yep. What the yeah. hell have these guys gotten us into? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in fact, a year later, in roughly the same place, uh, a contingent of the Hayden survey got lost in that same timber. Yeah. And it was be- it was because the topographer, who's this guy, Anton Schomburg, thought that he knew the way. And he led them. And, and the hunter and guide, Jose, whose last name we do not have, um was like, no, it's over here. And they refused, Anton Schomburn refused to listen to him and Hayden listened to Schomburn and they got lost. And hilariously, the next day after spending the night in the forest and also remembering that this is where Everts got lost, right? Like they have this, like, they're like, shit. Um, Because they do not want to be lost for 37 days. They saw what happened to him. They were like, okay, Jose, show us the way. Yeah. <laughs> so and so of course, uh the the man with the expertise, the man whose job it is to take people through here, uh gets them back to Yellowstone, like the banks of the Yellowstone Lake, like in three hours or something. Like, I mean, it's uh. just ridiculous. Like they were so close, you know, but they were wandering around. And so this area is is very tricky. And yeah. when Everts wandered away. I think the pivotal point, the first big mistake, well, the first big mistake is that he went by himself, right? And he he <laughs> depicts it, yeah, he depicts it in his account as like, oh, everyone was used to wandering around and we used to do this all the time. And so I like just kind of went off to investigate this possible route. Yeah. And then <laughs> I quickly found, but other other accounts say that there was a big fight and he stormed off. And so in a huff. He did have his horse with him at that moment. We'll get to that in a second. But the <laughs> but he wanders off and it's a couple of hours before anyone notices that he's gone. And this is really pivotal. Um, that's important. And then also his other, so he, he makes two mistakes in succession. One is wanders off by himself. The other is he is absolutely convinced he is going the correct direction to try and find his way back. And he's actually going in the opposite direction. Hmm. Yeah. He starts heading West. Like, and he thinks he's going. And, and the problem too, is that he ran into a lake and he thought it was Yellowstone Lake and it was not. Yeah. (laughs) So he, you know, you can see why it happened, but yeah, he put himself in a position uh, where it was pretty much entirely his fault. Yeah. And, and I think that pride, one of the things is like we have to recognize when historical actors have the opportunity to to make better decisions and they didn't. And right. this is one of those opportunities, like this exact moment on September 9th of 1870, he chose to accept the thing that he wanted to accept. And that was he was going in the right direction, which if you've spent more than three or four days outside continually, you're, you, you notice that you know, the sun rises in one direction and sets in the other and that one way is east and one way is west. And yes, even though that area in Yellowstone is notoriously difficult to navigate, one way is west and one way is east. And 
Yeah. You know, there's, there's moments in time where like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, you know, he was a tax accountant, but like, mm." (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Montana is not lacking in mountains and he are mountainous areas and yeah, he should have known, he should have known better. Or at least been able to swallow pride and say, okay, maybe I don't know where I'm going. Maybe I should retrace my step. However nearsighted I you know, oh my maybe God. I should go back to the group. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, like, they said that they shot off their guns. They said they built a bunch of search fires. And I was like, why didn't he see them? Like, initially. Or smell he was, them? Or yeah. I mean, initially, them? yeah. He was not that far away that first yeah. night. But I think the real problem was he then set out again thinking he was going in the right direction. And, and, and he did say, like, oh, my eyesight was defective. So I just like went head, like he went headlong. He must've been on that horse, like at a gallop or something because he covered like 10 or something miles that next day, which is hard, which is hard to do. Like in that area, like that's really, you have to be going really fast. And so he just kept getting further and further away from them. And then that led, you know, he had to kind of, there were all sorts of paths and he had to get off his horse and look at them and sort of figure out where they're going. And that's where we have probably the biggest mistake of all, which is that he did not hitch his horse. Um, he did not secure his horse at one point. It was on day, I think it was on day like two or three. The horse took off and it took off with his blankets, his gun, a pair of pistols, uh, which could have come in handy. Fishing tackle also could have come in handy. Matches. I And all of his extra clothing. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, you're seeing that horse bolt off and what are you thinking to yourself? Like, you're thinking to yourself, I am totally screwed right now. So the joke here amongst horse packers um, is that and, and most likely, this is, I don't know this for sure, um, but my husband used to pack horses professionally in Yellowstone. And um, historically, one of the ways in which um, packers used to run their horses is they would not um, tie up horses that were lower down in the herd hierarchy. And instead, they would, you know, lead or they would ride or horses that were higher up in the pecking order. So like the lead mares, the the geldings or the lead stallions, such as they were, the, um, particularly though the lead mares. And so judging by the way in which Truman Everett's horse acted, he probably was not riding a lead horse. Um, and even if he was, the point still stands regardless. Those horses, what they would do with all of the non, what these packers would do with all of the non lead horses is they would just let them loose and the other horses would follow the ones, the horses in charge, in other words. Mm. Especially mules will do that um, too. Um, oh. And so what Truman Everett's could have done is just, well, crap, I'm lost. Hmm. Oh, nice horsey. Go back to your friends. And eventually they probably would have made their way back to it. It might've taken longer than following the topography if he'd have known it, but if he was truly lost, he could have just given the horse its head and she would have gone. I think it was, I think it was a mare. She would have just Ah. gone back to him. And so what was happening when he left that horse unhitched, I mean, she may have startled to something, uh, but more than likely he was fighting her for a while which would maybe explain oh. the like 10 mile pace of like, I've got to walk the the spit and fire out of this horse. Um, 
And as soon as she had the opportunity, she was like, I'm getting the hell out of <laughs> away from this. <laughs> and so yeah. he set himself up for failure <laughs> in that fashion. <laughs> and granted, this is very much extrapolation on my part. Uh, but knowing historically how Packers used to run right. their horses, this is probably how it went down. <laughs> it, it, this is a conjecture. But see, like, I think it's based. But no, but it's. It's great. Yeah. And it's informed conjecture, yeah. right? I mean, this is, this is what's great. And this is what I love about kind of talking about this issue with someone with expertise like yours, like, you know, cause I've never really been around horses in my life. I've like ridden horses like four times and I'm scared of them. Okay. And so, you know, I don't, but, and, but no, but that means that I don't know when I read about all these guys and their horses and their mules, I don't understand their behavior. Like you understand their behavior. And it also speaks to a really interesting element uh, and of how environmental history and sort of the tools of environmental history, understanding animals, understanding like the natural world can help us understand human behavior. Really, really interesting. Yeah. And, you probably know this. I don't remember if the mayor ever made its way back to the to the group. I think Everett says that that Langford ultimately found it. But I know that okay. there's a story. I know that there's a story in Yellowstone that they only found the bones. Oh. And so they thought maybe they thought maybe Everett had eaten the horse but didn't want to tell people that. I don't, I don't know why, because because he, the story of, like, killing a bird with his bare hands was better than that. Like, I don't know. Like, I think people would understand if he ate his own horse. I mean, people did that in the Civil War all the time. <laughs> so, like, you know. Yeah. But I can't imagine him. I mean, if, if he still had the horse, he would have still had the blankets, the yeah. gun, the pistols. He would have had, and he would not have been in such bad shape right. three weeks And, later. I mean, I've heard stories that maybe the horse spooked at a bear that Everett's just didn't see or maybe mm. the horse spooked at something else right. or the mountain, or mountain yeah the mountain yeah line. but you know I either way the horse left him and to be fair if I was yeah, that horse, horse I'd him. probably leave that idiot too. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't sound like yeah it did not sound like he was comfortable on the horse it did not sound like he was uh, particularly good at riding the horse or dealing with the horse so yeah I, yeah, the horse left him behind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that was really the turning point. Because he actually, he tried to go after the horse. Mm -hmm. And that took a day. That also sent him in the wrong direction. Probably because he didn't follow it in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> probably, you're right. Probably the horse was trying to make its way back to, to right. the herd. And he was just like, oh, but it would have gone this way. Yeah, that was not that was not a good moment and it and it changed the whole calculus because that meant that really Everett's only had, you know, a few things that he had in his pockets, much of which he then later lost. Um and then um his opera glass yes. which turned turned out to be I mean he would have died yeah. without that opera glass. Um so he's really lucky that he had it. Of course, he didn't figure out that he could build a fire with it until like five days later, which is just like, oh, bud. Um, okay. Oh, like honey. after the snowstorm, <laughs> after the snowstorm is when he figured that shit out. So like that, that's another thing. It's like he, he was always delayed. And I, and I wonder actually at this point, I mean, at this point he was, he was, had gone without food mm -hmm. for more than three days. And, and 
so I'm sure that a lot of what happened after that, like all of his losing of things, his bad judgment, a lot of that is, is due to starvation. You know, his like brain is being Mm -hmm. starved um, and he's moving slower. He's, you know, his brain is like just not working and he's, and that's leading to a lot of these other things that happens. You know, he is able to, to start a fire, but then like after the snowstorm, when he's so cold and he has frostbitten feet, he, he does find some boiling springs, Mm -hmm. but then he like, like an idiot, (laughs) like lies down basically on the crust and then breaks through. And it's like, dude, oh my God. Yeah. And so he burns himself. He scalds himself on his hip. He's got the frostbite. You know, he's warmer, but he can't like stay there forever. And then it's just hot. Now he's hobbled. Mm. So he can't, he can't even walk very quickly Mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. And, and, from this point on, you know, like he builds a fire and then he falls into it, you know, cause he's kind of, he's weak and he's kind of hallucinating. He falls into the fire and burns himself and then loses one of the slippers he makes for himself and takes all day to find it. You know, all this time he's hallucinating, you know, as you would when you are kind of starving to death. And I do have to say too, he was probably in an advanced stage also of dehydration because you know, a lot of the water sources around there are either alkaline or acidic, you know, you just can't drink that water and the fresh water sources are further away. Yeah. He was having problems with that. And when you do that too, you get like, if you go without fresh water for three days, like you are in fast and rapid decline and you're also kind of going a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's worth, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning, and I think it's worth remembering, he didn't enter this this situation in peak efficiency, either. Um, no, yeah, no, yeah. So you know, you've got he's operating maybe at seventy five percent, and then adds all of these yeah. other medical maladies on top of them, albeit perhaps avoidable medical maladies, <laughs> but still, nonetheless. Yes. Yeah, and I mean. The only thing he had in his favor was that he was acclimated. Like that's pretty much the only thing. If he had been new to the area and still not acclimated to the elevation, that would have been yet another thing. But that was literally the only thing in his favor. And, you know, and as we know, even from today, there's a lot of things that equipment can help you do uh, that can help you kind of move beyond your physical limitations. But he didn't even have Mm. that. I think it's hard for us now to imagine what it's like to not have any transportation in that scenario and have to move yourself like 50 miles through a landscape that, you know, is, is in fact hiding imminent danger (laughs) underneath the ground. I mean, this is the thing about Yellowstone, right? It is a much more dangerous landscape than a lot of other places that people had been because of the the fact that the you know that these men were lying down and hearing the water boil mm. under their head mm-hmm. you know and and you could run into a boiling spring who knows where right like and it could just be anywhere and you fall through and die you know there there are kind of unforeseen or hidden dangers you know then there are the kind of just outright dangers of of possible predators that he deals with you know he has that whole sort of engagement with the mountain lion which when i first read this i was like really and then 
I read the story of that runner in Colorado who was attacked by the mountain lion and had to strangle it to death. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. And well, and then we also saw the footage from Utah Mm. of the mother mountain lion stalking that runner. And I'm like, well, maybe, yeah, okay. I could see that maybe that happened, that he had a standoff with a mountain lion. But yeah, I mean, so there are are those kinds of dangers that just this specific that are specific to Yellowstone. And then there are dangers that are just kind of the natural world. And then there, you know, is his complete incapability to deal with any of those because of all of the mistakes that he makes. And, and, you know, because of his kind of personality, one of the things that I did that I think is really interesting. I was, I was reading his account that was published in Scribner's Scribner's Monthly um, again today. And he has some really interesting moments where he, he just admits that he lost his mind, but that even while losing his mind, he had this sort of sense of self-preservation and that's what got him Mm -hmm. through it. And he kind of describes it as just a kind of an instinct that kicked Mm -hmm. in. And I don't, and I don't think it was, I mean, he talks about thinking about his home and he thinks, you know, thinks about his daughter and, you know, he's trying to get back to them and, you know, he hallucinates about these like lavish meals that he's going to have when he gets back, but that's not what's impelling them him. It's like this, this just deeply human instinct Mm -hmm. of like, I do not want to die. Mm -hmm. I do not want to die now. I do not want to die here. And as long as I am able I will continue to try and save myself. Hmm. And even though, I mean, he made so many different mistakes. He was trying all of these different routes mm-hmm. that weren't working. He was wasting all of this time. Mm-hmm. By the time ultimately, you know, Yellowstone Jack found him, it was early October. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, anybody caught out there is going to die. Yeah. If they're unprepared in early October. Yeah. Like that's a, just like a really dangerous time. But he was still, when he finds him, Everts is like, crawling still like that dude i mean you know we've been sort of mean (laughs) about all of his very critical of all of the elements of his personality and all the mistakes that he makes but i have to sort of admire that he just never gave up i mean he ate minnows he ate birds that you know songbirds or something (laughs) and then the thistle yeah he talked about the thistle the thistle oh god such a d- just disgusting and i've actually never you've seen them in actual nature yes. right i have not yes. so can you describe what they look like to me because i actually so everett's thistles they're also called elk thistles they were actually renamed after him after this experience but elk thistles mm-hmm. are a native plant to the area they tend to be taller than what we think of as actual thistles so we have you know there's scottish thistles and then there's elk thistles I mean, elk thistles can, if they're left alone, grow fairly, you know, a couple feet high, give or take. And then they do have, you know, purple blossoms that look a little bit softer than Scottish thistles. But they have these fine hair, hair on them. Um, And they are a bit prickly, but then the center of them has this like celery-like bulb um, if you strip away all the outside. But you, you have to go to a lot of work to get the inside of these bulbs. And so they're, they're a fairly common plant in the region. Well, and I wonder, because that does seem remarkable, because I'm not sure that I would know, you know, like, oh, here's this plant that I can eat. So I wonder, actually, if he had heard stories about them, or if, or if it was just sort of something that people knew, that these kinds of things were, in fact, edible, and that you could 
perhaps survive on them. The way that he described it, it just was so, I just shudder every time I think about it, but it, it was almost like if you're, if you're eating that kind of fibrous plant, like it just kind of goes down and just kind of blankets your stomach. Like just yes, sort of very, lines it. Very fibrous. Yes. They're sweet in the spring and then they become more and more bitter. And Ugh, indigenous peoples will God. eat them or ate them, excuse me, and still yeah. do eat them. You know, they're, they were a, a, a very sought after food. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I bet that's where he heard it. I mean, if it, I bet that is a piece of indigenous knowledge that he either had just kind of absorbed along the way and then was able to, to use. I mean, he doesn't acknowledge that at all in his account, no. which is not surprising. No. Um, but what it does is it enables his body to at least get some form of energy and to help him keep going. So he doesn't actually starve to death, even though I think it's very clear by the end. I mean, the descriptions of what his body looked like really his, his body was eating itself Mm -hmm. for at least two and a half weeks, but he was through eating the thistles was able to like actually sustain himself long enough to be found Mm -hmm. um you know and there's a certain point where he knows he's gonna have to cross this kind of valley um that doesn't have any thistles Mm -hmm. and so he like stockpiles them so that he can make it across you know what was interesting to me about this whole story is how familiar it sounded because it is really part of a very long-standing very famous narrative genre which is the adventure story of survival if you if you read any of the accounts of everest if you read any of the you know like what's his name crack hours into mm. thin air you know or you read any of these stories about people getting lost in like i think pretty recently a woman got lost maybe in hawaii and was out there for two or three weeks mm. before she was found or, you know, like the guy who had to cut his own arm off in the slot canyon in Utah. These stories, they all have the same kind of trajectory. And they are, in fact, a narrative genre. And mm. at this point, the reason why Everett's story was such a sensation is that Americans in 1870 were really looking for, they were looking for this kind of tale of survival. Mm. Mm. And it seemed to them to be, you've come out of this horrible experience. You've been tortured, you know, you've been tortured. You've kind of had all of these trials and tribulations Mm. and you have emerged and you have been rescued and saved and you have lived. Mm. Right. And for, Mm. for a country that is coming out of civil war, Mm. this is an especially resonant narrative. Um, It's also a a narrative that is just fuels settler colonialism. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, because it is a very white man focused, um, you know, defeat of the wilderness, defeat of your own savagery to be returned to civilization. You know, it's it's these kinds of themes that are sort of building on this notion of of American conquest. Yeah, really, that this man has gone into nature, he has been lost, he has come back. Uh, and it is a story of triumph yeah. and and conquest. Um, and even though Truman Everts himself was not particularly impressive, <laughs> um, and in fact, like even after he became so famous, like he he was lobbying against Langford to try to become the first superintendent of the, the Yellowstone National Park, and he didn't. He lost that. Um, but he just kind of seemed to wander off, mm-hmm. like into the rest of his life. <laughs> you know, and he actually lived. 
for a very long time and married a very young girl very late in life and had like a nine-year-old when he died, you know, when he was in his like late 80s, early 90s, which is kind of crazy. But his story really resonated kind of at this moment. And he, you know, he acknowledged the mistakes that he made. He did not acknowledge, of course, all of his privilege mm, and mm-hmm. everything that kind of put him put him in that position. We can co- sort of question his account because, of course, he is the only witness, right? <laughs> right? Um, and there are certain things that make it believable. There are certain geographic details that make it believable, and the you know the fact that there are thistles around and they are edible and there are in places where he could have obtained them, like all of that actually kind of makes sense coherently. But I think for Americans, it didn't even really matter if it wasn't fully true. That is such an excellent point. And I'm not sure it's fully mattered since then because his story, at least in the, at least in the Yellowstone area is such a notoriously told one. Like people tell it constantly about, Mm -hmm. you know, look at what this idiot from the East did, (laughs) you know, but there's also, you know, embellishments on it that take on a life of its own that I'm not sure is all that different than say, you know, the Jim Bridger being an infamous storyteller, but then also what your very applicable point about, it doesn't matter whether or not it's the truth to the greater, you know, United States, they needed this narrative to at least have the facade of truth and didn't really want to start digging underneath it. Exactly. Yeah. It helped them to imagine a way forward. Right. At this really pivotal moment, this sort of hinge moment, um, 1870, you know, by the time his story was told, he was ultimately rescued in early October, didn't really recover until November, and then published his story in 1871. Mm-hmm. In the wake of, you know, Nathaniel Langford published a two-part account of the of, of the exploration, and then in two separate issues of Scribner's Monthly, and then Everett's was the third piece, and then Ferdinand Hayden's was the fourth. Mm. Um, so within a year, mm. Scribner's Monthly, which was a, a new magazine founded in 1870, explicitly pitched at wholesome middle-class America. And it published four articles about Yellowstone in a year. Uh, and Everett's was one of them. And it made him famous. Huh. And it made Yellowstone famous. Huh. And one of the things that interests me too, uh, I know we were... I, had sort of mentioned this earlier, this kind of the losing of Everts comes is its own mythic tale. And then it's part of a lo- another mythic tale, which is the campfire story wow. about the origins of the national park. Because what's crazy is when Langford kind of cooks up this story uh, of <laughs> so to speak. the campfire. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know so many puns <laughs> along these lines. Um, when he starts telling this story, he totally omits that that this would have happened just a couple days after they give up the search for Everts. Like they've given up, they've given him up for dead. And then they're sitting around a campfire and they're like, oh, this place is really great. Why don't we make it a national park? I'm so glad you raised that because <laughs> I've never made that connection before, even though I knew that the Langford and the Everett stories kind of belong together, but I never fully made the explicit chronological. So they lost him and they kind of gave up and then they came up with the campfire. And it's just like, oh yeah. my. <laughs> Isn't that wild? 
I know. It's wild. And in fact, I mean, I think, you know, Aubrey Haynes has, has pretty persuasively argued that the campfire story is uh, a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally, totally yeah. made up. And I, and I totally understand why they made it up. And I think actually, and I, and I argue in the book that I'm writing that they made it up while they were lobbying for the park. Because it is also, like the Everts tale, a very comforting story, mm-hmm. right? Because the story is that they're on this manly exploration of the wilderness. They're white men conquering nature, you know, even though they lost their guy. Cue swelling music. <laughs> <Just not mentioned. laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Cue the swelling music. They're sitting by the campfire, by the banks of the, I think the Madison, maybe, um, or the fire hole. And they're like, you know what? We need to buy this land so that we can charge tourists when they come to see it. <laughs> like that's the first part. That's the first part of the conversation. You know, then suddenly he's like, no, we can't do that. Like this needs to be saved for the people, you know, taken out of private hands and given to the people as a national park. And then the story is that everyone's like, oh yeah, my bad. You're totally right. Like that's exactly what should happen. That also is a wonderful American story, right? Because it's like, oh, we have this first instinct to commodify, to turn the land, you know, in either develop it into something else or to sell it in some mm-hmm. way. But then we're, we're going to reject that and have a more moral stance where we preserve it for yeah. the people. Meanwhile, these are the guys who, you know, are trying to find Everett's by lighting fires and shooting off guns. And <laughs> but at the, this point in time, they're sort of sitting around the campfire and it's getting really cold and there may or may not have been a couple of snowstorms and they're sort of sitting around the campfire. And I imagine there's probably a separate campfire for the Packers, maybe, maybe not. And, and they're sort of sitting around mm-hmm. the campfire and they're like, crap. <laughs> and then this yeah. story is, 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 the story has grown around this like campfire persona and and yeah i think your point is very cogent is very well made in terms of like well they needed it to be this way and they yeah and they had and you have to remember too these campfire guys and that's a great point about like the packers were not part of this discussion um because why would they be right um but all of these guys are, you know, who do we have? We have the president of the First National Bank of Helena. Right. We have a merchant. We have a, a guy who is part of a mining and freighting firm. Mm. You know, we have a lawyer. Mm. We have a fur company guy. And then we have, like, the surveyor general of Montana Territory, the guy who wants to be governor mm-hmm. and the former, you know, assessor of the revenue, although he's not with them, but his <laughs> ghost is with them. But, um <laughs> But, you know, they are all business people. And so this is perfect because these guys are lobbying politicians who who are mm. themselves business people, right? And, like, Jay Cook is also lobbying mm. because he wants, again, to have tourist traffic uh, that will fuel his, his Northern Pacific Railroad. And so that story is – it's also, in a way, similar – to Everett's story and that it's a story of redemption, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that initially, initially they're going to make the like venal choice, but then <laughs> they see the light. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and, and they decide to do something for their fellow man. And that's exactly what the politicians would mm-hmm. be doing if they, if they voted to create a, a national mm-hmm. park. And so they could see mm-hmm. themselves in that campfire story. They could see their actions, you know, as these like 
you know, beneficent explorers mm. and, and then feel better about themselves and about mm. America. You know, what, what are these stories doing and what is their function kind of in the culture at this moment? And I think this really is why Everett's, Everett's is really important. Yeah. What, what does the party do after they may or may not have this, probably not have this campfire story? We're approaching September, October. What do they do? So they go, they ultimately return. Um, they're running out of food because they've, you know, spent this time and they did in fact spend time looking for efforts. Um, they, they managed to see a little bit of the geyser basin, mm. but basically they were like, we have to get back. Like we have to get back to Fort Ellis and Butler's ranch uh, or else we're going to starve to death. Mm. And so they, they actually get back fairly quickly. They're back um, in Helena by September 27th. And so they, they actually do return. They had left um, actually Gillette and, um, or Gillette, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, um, and a couple of soldiers to, to still search for Everett's. And they return, having not found him, on October 2nd. And Cornelius Hedges kind of goes back, and, and his law partner, um, a guy named Judge Lawrence, um, put up a $600 reward for Everett's return. So this is interesting, right? Like, they're like, we, we really need to go find him. And so this is where Yellowstone Jack... Um, Baronet. So he's, you know, sort of like this adventurer, former soldier, Indian fighter guy, you know, one of these guys. Yeah. He's again, like one of these guys who would have been a, a scout or a guide, um, a sort of man of fortune kind of in, in Montana. And he decides he's going to go find Everts. And so he brings with him a packer, George Pritchett, and they set out. Uh, one of the members of the party, Sam Hauser, made them a, a map. So here they are. Here's another kind of mapping system where they think that he got lost and where he might have gone. And he kind of follows the map down into Yellowstone and is sort of going a little bit south and then east of, of Mammoth Hot Springs and ultimately kind of en- enters, I guess, what is called the cut. And and I th- this is terrible. I have not been to Yellowstone since I was eight years old. And I was supposed to go in May. And of course, that got canceled. And then I had rescheduled it for October and that got canceled. <laughs> so, so one of the things I need to do uh, if I get a vaccine anytime soon is to go to, to Yellowstone and sort of find these locations so that I better understand where, where people were. But ultimately, they're kind of in this one of these, you know, many um, kind of cut throughs sort of portions where, where streams are, are pushing their way through a lot of this mountain chain surrounding Yellowstone Basin. And dog like starts barking and he thinks he's barking at a bear Mm -hmm. because he sees kind of across the creek like this form kind of crawling along the way and he thinks it's a bear and so he's about to shoot it and by the way this would have been an amazing end to that story (laughs) like if if that had happened oh boy wow um yeah but something made him stop and say you know this is not moving like a bear and in fact it was Truman Everts, uh, who at that point was just so desperate and he couldn't really stand up and walk anymore. And, you know, Yellowstone Jack just kind of walks up to him and he's like, are you Truman Everts? <laughs> <laughs> as, as one does. As 
one does. And Everett's is just like, oh my God, yes, I am. Like, you know, Yellowstone Jack's like, you're the man I'm looking for. And Everett's is like, oh, thank God. And just like passes out. Because at that point, you know, he doesn't have to try anymore. Yeah. Right? His his whole, all of that instinct of self-preservation that has been pushing him forward sort of dissipates and he passes out. And so with George Pritchett's help, Yellowstone Jack kind of moves him. Um, they're in a miner's cabin for a little while. He sends George Pr- Pritchett back for a wagon because he knows that there's no way that Everett's is going to be able to ride a horse or even he can't even like put him over a horse. Like they have to put him in a wagon. Um, and Pritchett ends up having to go all the way back to Fort Ellis, um, I think, or maybe even Bozeman um, to get a wagon to bring it back. Um, and what I think is super fascinating. So one of the three men at Fort Ellis uh, who Pritchett rounded up to come help was Harry Hoare, H-O-A-R, who uh, any anyone kind of doing Yellowstone history knows because he was one of the people who staked a land claim at Mammoth Hot Springs and tried to get Congress uh, to give him preemption rights in the national park. And it did not work. So this is this is one of these another interesting, very interesting moment where people involved in the later park project Mm -hmm. are involved in this moment, Mm -hmm. which is just really I love those. I don't know about you, but those are those moments where I'm like, oh, my God, (laughs) because, yeah, it shows you the interconnectedness of history. Right. It shows you how how often, especially in this period and in these places, the same people are circulating right. across humongous landscapes. Right. like, And they all are running into each other and doing things. Right. And you're like, how is this possible? I mean, this is one of the amazing things I discovered when I was doing the research for the Three-Cornered War, is that here I was telling the stories of nine different people, and they were all coming from different communities, which is why I was using them to tell the stories. But all of them either met directly or crossed paths sort of obliquely. Wow. Like they were in the same place at the same time, or they are right after one another, or new people in common. I mean, it was just craziness. And you see this here too, yeah. with all of these these stories. So they finally were able to bring him back, um, bring Everts back uh, by, again, kind of mid-October, kind of, they found him on October 6th and didn't really get him back uh, to Helena until November 4th. Um, but, and then he kind of recovered a little bit, and then they threw a big party for him. And this, this scene, I think is amazing. And I actually do, um, you mentioned my book project at the beginning, but the the book about the 1871 survey actually starts with Everts, because I think his story is so interesting for American culture at this moment in sort of shaping a vision, not only of Yellowstone, but of kind of white men in Yellowstone. Um, And so they have this party, like at this restaurant with it's just amazing. <laughs> it sounded like an amazing, like, I mean, it makes me hungry every time I read it. They had like 12 kinds of meat and 15 desserts. And like the table was like groaning oh, under the effort of <laughs> holding all of this food. And Everts is there like with a, you know, a crutch. He waved. Because he's still not fully. 60 some, and some odd pounds probably after a couple of weeks. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes. And I, I just, you know, trying to imagine him looking at all that food and wanting to eat it all because, you know, it was the food of his dreams. This was the party that he had hallucinated about and <laughs> he couldn't eat yeah. it. Like it would have killed him probably to, to do it because his body just was not ready. 
And so in the sort of phase where he was in the miner's cabin recovering, I think the miner gave him like castor oil or something. It was, so what I always to, heard was that it was bear grease. It was bear fat. And it was, oh, it was Jack fat. that gave him that because he was a kind of notorious for being a bear hunter. Um, oh. Which is one of the reasons why he had that dog. Uh, but that found Everett's, um, but Jack had some, uh, bear grease essentially as one does naturally. (laughs) Right. Um, and that's what essentially like got things moving along because Everett's had entirely too much fiber in his system from eating thistles for however many days. (laughs) You would know better than I would, whether or not it was true or not. But like, that's the story I always heard. Right. Well, I mean, I think physiologically, if you were to ask a doctor, I bet that tracks, you know, like you have to get something down in there that will get rid of <laughs> all of that thistle yeah. thicket, yeah. right? That's like in your stomach. So like, how do you in, you know, in a day in the days before modern surgery, how do you even do that? Right. So long. <laughs> do it with bear grease I guess so you know I mean he's still I'm sure it's a little bit like if you if someone's dying of dehydration you can't just let them drink all the water that they want right because it'll it will kill them you know I just imagine him at this party just like are you fucking kidding me and um (laughs) but but then also kind of but then also sort of probably enjoying the attention and the notoriety you know being lauded for his his efforts to save himself yeah the other element of the story that I think is just so perfect is that Yellowstone Jack never got the reward money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that the judge like somehow was just like, what? He's not dead. Oh. I paid you to bring his yeah. body back. <laughs> I paid you, yeah. And you did, but he's alive, so it's fine. Oh, true. And, and apparently, <laughs> yeah. And I think Cornelius Hedges, like, even complained about having to pay Yellowstone's Jack's expenses. Oh gosh. You know? And it's like, what? And I was like, oh man. Yeah. So that, that's sort of the perfect, the perfect end to the story is like the man with the true survival expertise who like saves Everts, like actually does not get compensated. Well, and this goes goes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier in reference to the Packers. There's this class element to the story here too where you know these these higher echelons of or soon to be higher echelons of montana society or territorial society are trying to ignore the fact that they are in fact being saved by the folks who had you know the white settlers who had been there for much much longer and had co-opted a lot of indigenous knowledge and you know so on and so forth and no, 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 we're just going to sort of leave you out of the story. And yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so Everett's is home safe. What happens to the various characters after he returned? Like just the, the short, short overview, what happens to these various characters involved after he comes home? Sure. Yeah. So, so Everett's is in Montana for a while and then he actually shows up uh, in DC during the lobbying effort for Yellowstone Park. Um, there are reports that, that he's around. And I have not been able to determine whether he actually lobbied mm. um, or what, what he was actually doing mm. there or whether he's sort of on his way. He ends up in Maryland, ultimately, uh, with the aforementioned child bride. Um, and, but, but we don't actually know 
uh, what he did because he they were considering him for the first superintendent, mm-hmm. but but they gave it to Langford instead. Um, and he just kind of, he just again kind of wanders off, and we don't really hear about him again. Um, he never becomes famous again for anything else. He doesn't go on the lecture circuit, which I think is interesting. Um, he he definitely could mm-hmm. have. Um, because that's a spectacular story and people would have paid mm-hmm. to hear it. Um, and Langford, of course, was on the lecture circuit mm-hmm. constantly, basically. And in fact, he, he had been giving the same talk that had turned into his Scribner pieces. And I think it was something like three or four days after the passage of the Yellowstone Act, he was in Minneapolis giving that talk, but he had retitled it, Our Great National Park. <laughs> So he knew what he was doing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing, and so, um, you know, Langford, I think, was the one who who really made the most of this moment. Um, he, after he came back, he went on this lecture circuit, supported by Jay Cook, and then he became part of the lobbying effort for the national park. And then was appointed its superintendent. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever made a ton of money out of it, but he probably got a bunch of kickbacks mm-hmm. and various other things. Um, and, the, you know, the other men on the expedition, uh, Cornelius Hedges and Sam Hauser also came east to help with the lobbying. They were called the Montana Group. And they were actually, this is very interesting, they argued, well, first of all, they were arguing for the National Park. But while they were there, while they were in the offices of these congressmen and senators, they said, oh, and by the way, Yellowstone really should be in Montana. And they said, this is what they said. Their, their argument was that the only way to get to Yellowstone was through Montana, which was true at the time. Uh, there didn't seem to be a way to access it from the south um, or from the east. And so the, the gateway was, was through what is now Gardner. And so they said, first of all, you, you know, you can't get there unless you come to Montana. So we control access. Then they said all of the major explorations until Hayden's were from Montana. So all of the knowledge that we have about Yellowstone before the scientific information came from Montana and Montanans, which Mm -hmm. was true. Um, And so what they were proposing was that Congress quite literally just take that land from Mm. Wyoming and just give it to Montana. (laughs) Mm. So so that, that uh, argument didn't go anywhere. Uh, even 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 among the sort of hardcore uh, Republicans who believed in just giving away public lands, they were like, "Yeah, it's kind of a bridge too far to take public lands. Like, we'll take a territory's public lands and give them to the Department of the Interior. We will take native lands mm-hmm. and sell them to settlers." Mm-hmm. Uh, But we will not, we draw the line at taking lands from an already created territory and giving them to another already created territory. Yeah, because this was still native land under the, this was still treaty land, this, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there there was an argument that it was treaty land. Although, and that's actually kind of interesting. They're in the debate about the national park. Somebody brings that up and is like, isn't this Lakota land? Well, they didn't say Lakota. They said, isn't this Sioux Mm. land based on the Laramie Treaty? And guess who it was who said, no, and even if it were, it wouldn't matter. Oh, God. Because, because we'll just take it. Uh, none other than Henry Dawes of the Dawes Severalty Act. So there we go. Yeah. So Which for the listeners who don't know, the Dawes Severalty Act 
quickly <laughs> was the act that yes yeah. uh yeah it basically outlawed communal ownership of of lands and native communities and basically uh forced upon them private land ownership in in the model of the homestead act of uh 1862 yeah uh, but yeah, so that was 1887. So that was that was in the future. Mm-hmm. But but Henry Dawes very clearly <laughs> had had already formed his opinions about native land rights, um, mm. and was like, oh, it doesn't matter. We will. It, those treaties obviously are not real. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So um, so that so the Montana group kind of did their lobbying effort, and then and then they went back. And I'm not sure whatever happened um, to a lot of the other guys uh, on the expedition. I mean, the uh, Cheney Doan ended up on part of the uh, Hayden survey the next year, um, and obviously was still uh, quite famous. He actually probably was the most famous person on that. Uh, on that expedition uh, after the fact and continued to be a soldier in Montana, um, I think for quite some time and both did, did what other frontier soldiers did, which is to alternately uh, escort groups like this exploration groups, surveyors, um, other kind of migrant groups, and then also pursue and attack native yeah. people. So that was the sort of two jobs of the the frontier military uh, at this moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these people are not, it, unless you are a Montanan or you're really into Yellowstone history. Which there are. Yep. There are, there are a lot of people. Yep. There are a lot of people into Yellowstone history. Um, thank goodness. Like they're my, I'm like, yes, my readers, my readers. <laughs> um, this is very exciting. I can't wait to meet you all. Um, but I, I don't think many Americans even know anything about Everts or. Right. Nathaniel Langford or any, or any of this. I mean, if, and I have to say, this is so terrible, but anytime I tell anyone <laughs> who is from the East or just like, doesn't really like travel much within the country that I'm working on a project about Yellowstone, I have to say like seven times out of 10, they think I'm talking about Yosemite and it's what? bad. So I have to, and, I, and I'm like, I know. And I'm like, no. Yellowstone, the one with the geysers and the mud pots, the one that kills Buffalo. people. And they're like, oh, yeah. And, and I'm like, not Yosemite has the domes and the free climbers, those crazy sons <laughs> of bitches. Like Yellowstone, and, but they don't, it's because it's, they're both yuz. They just cannot, it's, mm. it's like a, a weird sort of thing. So, so yeah, I don't think anybody knows about this early history, about these early explorations. Um, and so that was one of the things that interested me um, and made me want to write about this. I mean, not only because the 150th anniversary is coming up. So that's the real kind of impetus for getting the book out um, so that it will co- coincide with that anniversary um, and allow us to think about Yellowstone kind of in a new way. But it's, you know, even people who think a lot about Yellowstone don't think about it's the fact that all of this is going on kind of in the middle of reconstruction, uh, which is, you know, unprecedented exertion of federal power across the nation in the South and in the West. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the book is to put Yellowstone in conversation with other things that are happening in this moment. And what I also think is interesting about Yellowstone, because this is one of my other questions about it was 
here's this place, and this is why the book is called This Strange Country. So everyone who talks about Yellowstone in this period is like, what the hell is yeah. this? Like, this is, this is weird. It's strange. It is, you know, infernal. It is, uh, as Jim Bridger put it, uh, and this was my alternate title for the book, Where Hell, Where Hell Bubbles Up. It is simultaneously like the perfect place. It's, it's simultaneously the weirdest place to make our first national park and also the perfect place because it has all of the elements of nature that Americans had already been conditioned to think about as sublime. It has the waterfalls, the hugely impressive waterfalls. It has amazing mountain ranges. And Americans were used to, to looking at those and thinking of them as, as America's you know, particular glory, right? Of, and proof that we were nature's nation and superior to Europe. But then it also has <laughs> boiling geysers and basically a super volcano that can kill us at any moment. And what better representation of America is there? The sublime and the terrible. You know, all, all of the just amazing, glorious, wondrous elements of our country and then everything that lies beneath. Right. That is just roiling and bubbling and sort of waiting to explode. Oh, that's such a great way to, that is, hmm. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, and to have, (laughs) and then to have, to have these white guys sitting around a fire and then telling the story about this fire later about how, you know, we could have made money off of this. I just want you guys to know that we could have, but we chose to be Mm -hmm. much more noble than that. Right. Just to have that narrative layered on top of the the environmental analogy, as you so as you put so well earlier, is yeah, exa- you know, just that moment that white Americans were looking for in this time period to sort of create this redemption narrative, this redemption arc about themselves. And Truman Everett's is that story exactly. in many ways. Absolutely, and and one of the things. It's really interesting to see that when newspapers report on the creation of the park, they often say, this is a place where we will go to recreate ourselves. Oh. But they, so like recreation, mm-hmm. right? But they spell it R E, they spell it R E dash create. Mm. So they are recreating themselves. Huh. The, the last note for the Everett story is what happened to Deck Barnett at the very, very end is his last interaction with Truman Everett. Oh, I don't know oh, what, what's the story this? you're thinking of. No, so, okay, so no. what I have heard is that when Everett had moved back east and had married his child bride, um, Jack Baronet follows him several years later looking for his <laughs> $600 because the judge said, no, Everett's will pay you because Everett's was alive and I wanted to pay you for his body. So let's get super legal about this. Uh, Everett will give you the money. You know, Yellowstone Jack goes back east and he knocks on his door. And this is the, you know, fable that I was told. But I, you know, he knocks on his door and Everett opens the door and Jack's like, can you pay me? And Everett slams the door in his face. Oh my god! Yeah, and and I, I think that wow. might be a little bit hyperbole, but I do I, I do think that there is some truth to the story that, that Jack went back east looking for money and Everett's refused to pay refused to pay him. <laughs> I mean that totally tracks, and it's also 
you see the sort of desperation of and the class differences you were pointing out earlier, because he was making $3,000 a year. Yeah. As the revenue professor. I I didn't know that. Yeah. It's in the, um, I think it's in the, it's a budgetary item, I think that I found, that I found um, with his, with his name on it. So yeah, he, so he's living, you know, in Montana making $3,000 a year, which is just like insane. Like that's a lot of money. Um, So, so for Jack to track him down across the country for $600, like shows how desperate his situation must have been, right? Even if it's not true, it still sort of shows this breaking point between the classes of working settlers, but still yeah. settlers, but working settlers and coastal elites and East Coast elites who were very much wanted to sort of claim all of the things that were this territory and the and the stories and the narratives about this territory that would support you know, American exceptionalism. Yeah. Well, and that, and the work that actually goes into these explorations. Yeah. Oh yeah. That this is, this is labor, right. And it's, it's both the labor of men. And as you pointed out earlier, the labor of animals, Mm. you know, they had animals, they had horses, they had mules. Those things were carrying one of, one of the mules in the Hayden survey was carrying a mobile dark room for William Henry Jackson. You know, one of them was dragging an odometer. They they talk about mules like falling off the trail yeah. and sliding down the mountain. They have to pull them back up. These are the parts, you know, America wants to hear the story of the white men in the wilderness, you know, doing the exploring. And the story that doesn't get told is this, the, the story of the, the people and the animals that make it happen. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I, I, I sort of love this, this story of Jack because it really does... And because it's, it sounds like it's also a local story and I could totally <laughs> see that being like, yeah, like here we are. Cause you know, and, and this happens a lot in, in places in the West where there's a lot of tourism. Yeah. And so the local community, they're the ones who run that whole system. And so the, the disconnect and the tension between that group of locals and all of the, the, either the transplants or the people just visiting, like that's a real tension. It's a class tension. It's often a race tension, mm-hmm. um, you know, race and ethnic tension. Um, you know, and it's also a cultural mm-hmm. tension. Mm-hmm. So I could just see what I, what I would love to see is if, you know, this was like some, you know, part of Maryland where, where Everett's is living, it's like, you know, some suburb of Baltimore or something and Yellowstone Jack comes up you know like what does he look like in that contact this is 1870 he probably had to get on a train and I just imagine him sitting next to this woman in a bonnet and and she has like on her velvet taffeta thingy and she's just like holding her handkerchief to this guy to her nose as this guy in like furs who's all scarred up from bear fights growling at her like I know. Did he bring the dog? Oh. So let's talk sources really quickly. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've already mentioned, you know, a couple of times um, the stories in Scribner's Monthly. Yes. This is for this period, popular magazines are and newspapers are the way that, that people get their information. Right. And they are often also the way they get their culture. And so Scribner's becomes this important magazine at this moment because of its overt 
targeting of this kind of rising middle class uh, that is, you know, doesn't want to read about anything like super violent or smutty. Mm. Um, It's all very, you know, kind of cultured and, uh, like wholesome pieces wholesome white um, and so white all other things in the wilderness <laughs> exactly exactly so so scribner's is doing a lot of cultural work kind of bringing yellowstone into the imagination mm-hmm. and so it's it's really important to look at everts's piece um as doing a lot of work um for him for yellowstone uh, and for the nation and so those accounts are are incredible of course langford's diary mm-hmm. which mm-hmm has been, you know, written over and revised so that, you know, it's always important to kind of see those sources and look at them with a little bit more kind of skeptical eye. And the, for my purposes, for, for looking at the 1871 survey, that is, I mean, the government documents on those explorations are voluminous, Mm -hmm. which has been really helpful for me because most of them are digitized. So I've been writing this book in quarantine and it's been very helpful to have access uh, to digital resources. And so I've had access to the government documents, to the Congressional Globe, which verbatim transcribes the debate about the Yellowstone Act, Hmm. right? Um, And then also, you know, I was able to find um, the report from the, I think it was actually a military report that um, Cheney Doan wrote and submitted on Yellowstone. So that's reproduced as a government document. So there are all sorts of government documents. Then there's also newspaper reports. Newspapers across the nation were reporting on Langford's exploration, on Everett's getting lost, um, on you know both of their pieces coming out in Scribner's. They'd have mm-hmm. like little columns kind of reviewing mm-hmm. what had come out in the magazines. And so they were talking about Everett's again. And then reports then also on, on the Hayden survey. And so all of these documents... We, what, and we do have, you know, from the, the Washburn, you know, expedition, the Langford group, you know, we have a lot of first person perspectives from that, uh, from that exploration, which is great. Um, and we also, I think, have a couple of visual images, although not as many. I mean, the 1871 survey, part of the joy of researching that, too, is just the unbelievable amount of visual culture, mm. um, the Jackson photographs. Um, the Henry Elliott illustrations, the um, Thomas Moran watercolors, and then his paintings. And that kind of visual imagery is just immensely important for conveying what Yellowstone means, like Mm -hmm. what not only Yellowstone is, um, but what it means uh, to the American people Mm -hmm. at this moment. Um, And as you know, like I love, because you're familiar with my work, I love using visual sources. Um, and, and the landscape itself uh, to tell us things that we might not know otherwise. So, um, so those, are, those are my kind of go-to groups, the sort of diaries and memoirs um, that are either handwritten in manuscript form or published in magazines like Scribner's and then you know, newspapers and government documents and visual. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Should, should we end there? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Megan. I have... Loved having you on to talk about Truman Everett's uh, journey through Yellowstone. I have learned so much and am so grateful that you were here. For the listeners who want to follow more of Megan's work, you can find her at MeganKateNelson.com or follow her on Twitter at MeganKateNelson. 
Thank you for joining us today. For more information, you can go to historiesgreatestscrewups.com or follow us on Twitter at hscrewups. History's Greatest Screwups Pod is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Carrie Clement. Music is by Scott Holmes. Join us next time for tales about poor decisions, unfortunate mistakes, and bad luck in history. Until then, be good people and make good choices so you don't end up on this pod. <laughs>